Well, as folks in Arizona know, I've long been a supporter of the filibuster because it is a tool that protects the democracy of our nation. Rather than allowing our country to ricochet wildly every two to four years back and forth between policies, the idea of the filibuster was created by those who came before us in the United States Senate to create comity and to encourage senators to find bipartisanship and work together. And while there are some who don't believe that bipartisanship is possible, I think that I'm a daily example that bipartisanship is possible. Not just this trip today and tomorrow that John and I are doing, but the work that John and I and I and many other of my colleagues in both parties do on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So to those who say we must make a choice between the filibuster and X, I say this is a false choice. The reality is, is that when you have a system that's not working effectively, and I would think that most would agree that the Senate's not a particularly well-oiled machine, right? The way mm -hmm. to fix that is to change your behavior, not to eliminate the rules or change the rules, but to change your behavior. So I'm going to continue to go to work every day, aggressively seeking bipartisanship um, in a you know, cheerful and happy warrior way, as I always do, and showing that when we work together, we can get things done. A lot of folks yes. say that the filibuster is a relic of the Jim Crow era, um, and my sense is you don't support well, the filibuster was not created as a tool to accomplish one thing or another. It was created as a tool to bring together members of different parties to find compromise and coalition. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, welcome, everybody, to episode 22 of Left Reckoning, where we do, in fact, think that uh, we agree that bipartisanship is possible, and we think that it's a very, very, very bad thing to do. Um, I'm doing as always, by my good friend, Matt Leck. How you doing today, brother? Uh, I'm doing well, ready to build coalitions with uh, <laughs> people we definitely want to build coalitions with. I love that clip so much because, um, you know, she always, like, is a avoiding answering to do what right when they say like wasn't well, this a relic of the jim crow era she's like well it's actually about bipartisanship it's like well bipartisanship to do what in that case you know prevent uh, people of color from having equal rights to everybody else in the united states uh, it's not a good legacy at all yeah i mean i love the question like it seems to me you don't support jim crow so i'm curious yeah i mean look the thing is is you had your chance you had your chance like the re there's a reason everyone notices this isn't a well-oiled machine is because it sucks. And there's yeah. you if if you could name bipartisan accomplishments that you've done with you know whatever Republican you're standing next to, you could you would have. Like mm -hmm. the, the deadlines passed. I, I feel like a fourth grade teacher. Like the assignment. Like I've given you. I've extended this like two weeks. This paper's passed to. Like it's not here. We're done with it. Exactly. Well, we got a lot on the docket today. Um, so we shouldn't waste too much time. I'm really excited. In a little bit, we're going to be joined by uh, Kurt Hackbrath to talk about uh, Mexico, these upcoming elections over the weekend, um, as well as why the rich hate AMLO. Um, it's going to be a very fun conversation. Go down, take a little trip down memory lane uh, to the kind of centrist liberal freakout when AMLO first gets elected. Um, and then a little bit later, Matt's going to be breaking down how uh, Crowder um, is actually inadvertently aiding uh, Fauci. <laughs> inadvertently or maybe he's taking money on the side i don't know i just i'm just observing patterns and all the patterns that i see i think fauci is gonna uh send a nice you know 
pack of cigars to Crowder and his buddies saying, yo, keep doing the work. Keep doing what you're doing. Because uh, it plays right into Fauci's hands, um, my opinion, with uh, dumb critiques of uh, and COVID denial also. Um, people just don't know what excess mortality is. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's causing everyone to think like, oh, maybe deaths are inflated. No, uh, deaths are undercounted for COVID. Sorry, guys. Uh, it actually was a big deal. Uh, it actually it wasn't, you know, we were just counting all the flu deaths. Um, yeah, and we'll get to it later, but it's just, it's so amazing to me, like these these people. It's like, you're not the first person to think about this. This would be a methodological problem, right? Literally. Just dumbass, like, think something for the first time, but like, well, this would be a problem if they didn't consider this. No, yeah. people have considered this asshole. <laughs> this is their job. Like, like it would be, what if, what if they haven't considered people haven't go, not going in to get medical care because of the pandemic? Literally, the second thing on a list of AB through one through six that they considered very specifically. So, I mean, it'd be bad if they, you're right. It would be bad if they didn't consider that very elementary stuff. Um, but that's not really the reality. And uh, the people that traffic in creating the idea that that is the reality are the ones I, take issue with them this is not a fauci defense uh actually fuck fauci that's really another uh this is, a bum st- <laughs> this is really we're trying to reclaim uh fire fauci um but uh anyway exactly. let's let's get off the uh, fauci train for a little bit <laughs> I'm, I'm down to do that um well a little bit later um we're going to be premiering some really exciting dance moves uh, from pedro castillo and sort of going through uh, that election too as we come into the final stages of a really historic opportunity for peru um but before we get to our first guest i wanted to bring up a very important thread and fight that we are seeing all across not just the country but the world Public power, public utilities, the right, the democratic right to control the infrastructure that provides us with the most critical services in our modern society is under threat where it exists under public control. And wherever it is controlled by capital and private interests, it is becoming more and more entrenched. This week, we saw a massive privatization move in Puerto Rico. Um, A private company, Luma, has taken over power in that still, and I will use the word U.S. colony. Um, In a little bit, we're going to talk about how in Mexico, AMLO is trying to boost uh, public control over power production, and he is under a a relentless assault um, from the right wing and moneyed interests for it. In Chile, we know that this has been a flashpoint since Pinochet, and we all know way too well the devastation that happened here in Texas due to deregulation and privatization. But from PG&E out west to Flint to Jackson, Mississippi, the utilities that we need to survive have been wrestled away from us and are servicing the interests of private capital. Now, just because utilities are under public control does not necessarily mean that they'll just be better by virtue. But controlling your own utilities means that we can eradicate the pernicious need for private profit in order to provide basic services. Because that goal of private profit, we see time and time again, leads to shortcuts, mismanagement, um, and in many cases, not delivering these services at all to poor and working class people. Eradicating the private interest from utilities eradicates the need to thrift, And in a functioning democracy, it allows for us to control the resources that are necessary to live. 
And I just want to make a couple quick structural points on this. Just like we argue that Medicare for all is important, not just because it will provide people with health care, right, and provide a better service than what we get today. It's also critical. Um, Medicare for all is also critical because it takes away one of the most powerful weapons that the bosses have over us, which is access to health care. Um, you know, having people being afraid if they leave their job or lose their job or get fired um, means that they won't be able to go to the doctor is an incredible discipline tool for the ruling class. It's the same thing um, when it comes to access to utilities. Um, you know, whenever you think about somebody describing a picture of poverty in the United States, often the image that you use is the gas or the electricity being shut off. Um, and when you're in a place like that, you're willing to endure a lot of abuse to make sure you have the basic necessities of life met. Make no mistake about it. The fact that we have to pay these outrageous uh, rates on, you know, for public utilities is another example of how capital uses private control of resources to discipline labor and the working class. Remember, um, you know, you can go back in our own history when they did, when uh, FDR did the TVA, uh, we talked about this with Dustin Guestella. They called the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, what brought power to thousands upon thousands of people. They called it a Soviet dream um, because it was radically reshaping um, not just the physical world, um, but the possibilities of, of people around them. And they took that mandate very seriously with the TVA uh, to you know, create a lot of really important projects for people in Tennessee. And on that note, if you're worried about climate change, as you should be, you should understand that wrestling control over power production from private interests is not just important, it's an absolute necessity, right? This kind of false notion that we can just make consumer choices, we can opt into green energy, things like that, um, versus having direct control of the system is a lie that has been pushed upon us by the ruling class, right? This idea that it's not the responsibility of you know, these power companies in general, but on your own personal choices and individuals, an individual consumer is wrong. We have to take control of these systems so that we can use them for better purposes. And on that note, and maybe it's a discussion for another time, this is a great example of why smaller is not necessarily better for these kind of things. Um, to do the things that we want to do as socialists, as leftists, as progressives, um, to do the things that we need to do, fighting climate change and equities when it comes to access to power, clean drinking water, we have to be taking these things under public control and eliminating the minority interests of capital from our critical infrastructure. It's simply our democratic right. And I've been very encouraged to see, um, you know, we had planned on opening with this for a little while um, today that Cory Bush and, and Bowman are now uh, have released, uh, Matt has it up here, great. Um, I've put forward a resolution demanding, uh, you know, public control of our energy companies, um, not only, you know, making them better and, and more equitable, um, but in fact, and this is quoted from the piece, um, the resolutions ambitious still is the resolutions call eventually to transition off for profit utilities entirely. The federal government would acquire them before transferring ownership over to state, local and tribal governments or other appropriate scales of public ownership. Um, this is a great piece. People should definitely check it out. And it's a great reminder of Corey Bush's story and the perspective that she has, which is so important. But remember, this is a serious fight, not just in the United States, but around the world, because controlling these things really does matter. Um, and that's why we are seeing the entrenched power of capital working so hard to make sure that we don't take it back. But it's an absolute 
necessity if we want to have a better future or in fact a future at all. Yeah. I mean, that's so great. The new resolution co-sponsored by uh, AOC Talib, Mondaire Jones, Diana Presley, Ilhan Omar, Marie Newman, and Raul Grijalva, who I, I confess, I don't watch Congress enough to know who the latter two are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, exactly. I, I felt the same way when uh, that crossed my feed today. Like, Oh, I am pleasantly surprised. That's what, you know, that's what people set you to office to do. And, and also like, and also like, even more than that, right? Like Cori Bush, um, I, I love to see her take on these issues too, because you know people might pigeonhole as like the BLM candidate. Clearly, there's a lot more going on to her uh, than that. So I, I, I just love seeing that. So, for sure. Um, do we want to play this? Uh, this? Uh, yeah, like a little palate cleanser. Yeah, get in the mood real quick. Um, I just love this clip. I was playing this on on repeat. This is Pedro Castillo um, at a rally, I think, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, and just and just to explain why David loves this so much is because uh, he gets a lot of crap for his insistence that we include country music as part of the uh, uh, brand of the show. And uh, so this is um, uh, uh, this is from Ali Vargas of Kawashan News. I'm maybe not pronouncing that right, but Yarita is the number one chicha star in the Peruvian and Bolivian Andes. Uh, I remember how listening to her drew ridicule in Lima. It's labeled as Cholo music. This is the culture of the majority now united. So anyway, just to preface that, and uh, here's this uh, clip. Is that playing for everybody else? Can you hear it? No. Oh, okay, one second. Let me... Um... It's a cold open, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I gotta share one one second. Sorry, folks. No worries. No, I I like this clip, and I don't mind waiting a little bit for it. it puts me in a good mood, and I need that after thinking about. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Right. <laughs> And man, I mean, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, uh, Pedro Castillo and this really historic and exciting campaign a little bit later. But um, I will say, like, one, they know how to have a good party. There's been a lot of great <laughs> people like dancing, and we might play some more later for fun, maybe in the post game. Um, but also one thing about uh, Pedro Castillo and, and this campaign that's been so great is if you notice those little pencils that they have flying around, um, those are because they promised to, if elected, rewrite the Constitution, um, a Constitution that actually protects workers' rights and you know and, and fights against the interests of, of capital, you know, and to present that they just you know the pencil has become a symbol of the movement, which I just love a good gimmick like that. that uh, no, that's we, very nice. We don't do that enough here. Yeah, absolutely not. Very simple, very direct. You know what that message is. Yeah. Um, Patreon.com says left reckoning to support the show, folks. Um, yeah, what do we want to tease? We're going to do some reading series uh, coming up. First, though, it's going to be a debate. Um, Panich, we've teased it a few times. Uh, Leo Panich versus who is he? Uh, um, oh, it's um, it's Yaren Brook. Um, who Ben Burgess has debated a couple of times, uh, a really annoying um, kind of libertarian free market uh, character. And um, I cannot remember 
the the other person's name, but she is a you know a, a MP in Canada, the Conservative Party. It's a really it's a really frustrating debate, if I'm being quite honest, because Brooke um, obviously you know the Conservatives don't understand Panage's argument, uh, but Panage actually makes a very interesting and compelling argument that's fun to listen to and. I have to say, I always respect somebody who can, you know, gets put up on a stage to debate two different people at the same time. Yeah, and that is how they build it. Yeah, no, they build it, and then of course the moderator is very, very much against uh, Panish and socialism as well. So it'll be a fun watch. I think we'll do that either Sunday or Monday. Um, Yeah, but uh, yeah, so Patreon.com/slash/LeftReckoning, folks, and anybody who uh, uh, is watching this now and wants the post game will also want to go there. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's bring Kurt on now. There he is. Hey, how's it going, Kurt? Good. How are you guys? We're good. Thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, live no, it's here my on, pleasure. on Left Reckoning. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, no, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, for folks who aren't familiar, uh, we're speaking with uh, Kurt Hackbarth. Um, who is a journalist based in Mexico. And we're going to be talking a little bit about OMLO, these upcoming elections, um, and a few other things regarding Mexico. And I think these conversations are really important because despite Mexico being, you know, one of our neighbors, a lot of American leftists are pretty uh, mystified as to what's going on uh, politically in Mexico. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, but just to set the stage a little bit, and I think most of the people who have been, who listen to the show will be familiar um, but I just want to take a quick stroll down memory lane. Uh, right. For folks who don't remember, when AMLO first gets elected in Mexico, there is a collective freakout in American media, including some really despicable um, you know, comparisons of AMLO to, to Donald Trump. Um, and I think, um, and, and we'll be going in a little bit to uh, one of the worst defenders of this, The Economist, um, and, and their contemporary coverage of OMLO. But could you just sort of set the stage as to why OMLO's election was such a, one, shock, um, and also, too, why there was such a you know, negative reaction in a lot of mainstream media in the U.S. and, and abroad? Sure. Um, so when OMLO wins the presidency uh, in 2018 on his, uh, on his third campaign, uh, he previously run for president in 2006 um, and had won and had had it stolen from him. And then again in 2012, um, it was the first victory of a center-left candidate in Mexico, arguably since the 1930s with Lázaro Cárdenas in the post-revolutionary uh, period. There had been no, uh, not even you know, a center-left government since then. Um, and it was an overwhelming victory. AMLO won with 53% of the vote. He um, defeated his... Uh, the candidates of both the PRI, the former party of state, the former hegemonic party of state, and the PAN, the conservative party, um, yeah. by about points, uh, clear in a way. And Morena uh, won the majority in both houses of Congress, which is what they're defending uh, in the elections on Sunday. And just to say that was 30 points, because I think you got cut off. Oh, it was, uh, yeah, it was 30 points. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so it was an extraordinary victory in terms of numbers. Um, especially with everything that AMLO has had against him. You know, he's had uh, almost a uniform wall of both national and international press against him. Um, And, you know, a a structure of, uh, we can talk about this later too, a national Mm -hmm. election institute, which is also hostile to Morena. 
And I think it's important to point out that Morena had only been founded in 2014. It's mm -hmm. an extraordinarily new party. I mean, imagine a party being founded uh, seven years ago and then winning the presidency and winning both houses of Congress. Um, you know, the, the PAN has been in existence since the late 30s, the PRI in different formations since the revolution 100 years ago. So it's extraordinary that AMLO left the PRD, which mm -hmm. kind of uh, imploded kind of along the lines of the U.S. Democrats. He got out of there, formed a new party, um, is helped by the fact that Mexico has public financing for parties. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been possible. Um, formed a new party. Uh, they contended the elections in 2015 took a first step, and then 2018 wins the presidency. Uh, it's an extraordinarily uh, quick rise um, for, for a fledgling party. And, and it very much relied on, you know, on mass movement building and, and, and base building and, and getting people out. I mean, I remember some of the things that really pissed off a lot of the more like centrist commentators about AMLO uh, was his use of, you know, kind of direct democracy or, and polls and things like that. I remember there was a big freak out about, uh, I, I can't remember if it was Mexico City or not, but an expansion that had been planned to an airport there that was really, really expensive. And he put out a poll. Um, to folks there who said, oh, they didn't want to spend all this public money on an airport. Um, and, you know, people in the economist are very worked up about this uh, development, right? Um, but so so this is, so he comes in on this wave of, uh, you mm -hmm. know, of, of popular support. How has, how has Onlo governed in his first few years um, in office? It's, you know, as I wrote in uh, my recent piece in the Jacobin, there have been some solid advances in, um, in these first three years. Mexico is not what it was in 2018. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to kind of set the stage because I think a lot of English language commentary on Mexico leaves out what, what happened before this, you know, where Mexico was. Um, you know, in the 1980s, um, Mexico went through a wholesale privatization, um, not quite as far as Chile, but pretty far. Over a thousand state agencies uh, were privatized throughout the 80s uh, and 90s on the heels of the uh, pace of devaluation of 82, which ushered in the neoliberal era. So that means um, the airlines, that means the banks, that means um, uh, all of the major um, uh, institutions uh, went through a, a period of privatization. So you get that in the 80s and 90s. <clears throat> um, and then in the 90s, NAFTA comes in. Right? And then you have another devaluation in 94, the tequila crisis. NAFTA opens the door, um, and then which devastates the countryside, um, and then floods you know, the market with you know, American junk food and all the rest, creating this massive health crisis and obesity problem that Mexico suffers now. Then by the 2000s, Mexico had degenerated into an absolute kleptocracy, and that's, that's no exaggeration. Um, there was this new generation of... Uh, multi-millionaires who had been had become rich overnight on the backs of the privatization of the Mexican state. You know, Carlos Slim, who was for a time the richest man in the world, um, got Telmex and also Telso, the phone companies. So what they do is they just privatize one thing after another to their crony friends. And then that would then be funneled back into the PRI and the PAN, this duopoly. And the idea was just to pass the ball back and forth forever between two right-wing parties and call that democracy and, and trust that the international press would go along with that and say, sure, you know, this is Mexico has, has been open to democracy because another right-wing party, uh, you know, uh, took power. So it's Mexico went through an extraordinary series of shocks. And then on top of that, in 2006, this so-called drug war 
comes on with, with Felipe Calderon, um, which has caused the deaths of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people directly and indirectly and has torn apart the social fabric of the country. So you're, you're talking about a public that's gone through two massive devaluations and then a third slow motion devaluation. The peso devalued another 100% in, over the last 20 years, little by little, um, has had their entire state practically uh, privatized, um, has had the countryside and their farming system devastated by uh, NAFTA, uh, and then has had their energy sector uh, privatized in the, 20, in the 2010s, which created a, a whole new wave of dependency, making Mexico dependent on imported gasoline from the United States and imported foodstuffs from the United States uh, you know, through NAFTA and other things. So it made Mexico prostrate and at the hands of a criminal enterprise that was running this country. Um, so it's no generation to talk about a combination of state capture on one hand. Uh, these interests had captured the state and every state decision was being was being made in their kleptocratic interests and state terror at the same time, using the terror of the so-called drug war to go after um, uh, any attempts at, uh, at organizing against them. So it's extraordinary that this is usually left out of the equation, right? Um, you know, Mexico, what AMLO is trying to do right now is, is dismantle something along the lines of Manipuliti in Italia and, and Lava Jato in Brazil, which, of course, as we know, is twisted in political, uh, in a political direction. But the Mexican press doesn't, sorry, they, well, the Mexican press doesn't either, and, and to a large extent, but the international press doesn't touch this because the, the previous governments were doing what, the U.S. and uh, and the World Bank one, and they were you know privatizing. They were opening up the energy sector, so they turned a blind eye to these things. And actually, the United States was complicit in this, you know, all the way down the line. And and, and uh, I, I, I wanted to hit sorry, this coming from me. Yeah, I think a little bit of feedback from you. Right, hold on one second. Um, I, I, I this is more of a comment. Um, if you can mute yourself, David. Um, yeah. Okay. That's gone. Um, this, no, is that me? That's me. Sorry, David, you, you, uh, take over and I'm going to try to figure out what's going on with me. As a, you know. <laughs> Sorry about that. We're using a new system tonight. Um, cause the privatization of, of power is really important. Right. Um, yeah. and, and I, I wanted to get to that cause we opened up the show today talking about, um, you know, privatization schemes in the United States and, and across the world and how this really is starting to become more and more, of a fight for left-wing governments, populist movements, uh, trying to reclaim control of, of these industries. Um, OMLO now is in the middle of a huge fight over the Electric Industry Act, if I'm correct. Um, right. Could you explain what that is and why the right-wing and, and capital has been fighting them so hard and how they're fighting against against? Sure. The so in 2013, 2014, um, the PRI government under Peña Nieto um, passed privatization, uh, part privatized Pemex, which is the state oil industry, um, and has also um, been working on privatizing um, the electricity system under the, uh, the Federal Electricity uh, Commission. So the effects of that have been, remember that Mexico, you know, it's important to point out, Mexico is an oil producing country. Mm-hmm. It has plenty of its own, you know, Mexico has been blessed or cursed with an abundance of natural resources. So it has, it has oil, it has natural gas. Uh, It has wind in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. It has water in Chiapas. It has lithium in Sonora, which is a big thing now as to what they're going to do with that Mm -hmm. and how they're going to it. So Pemex was opened to private um, investment. Um, 
with the result that um, Mexico became dependent on the importation of uh, gasoline and natural gas from, guess where, Texas. Yeah. We helped you all out a lot during the winter storm, right? (laughs) Right. So in February, when Texas goes off the grid, 4 million people in Mexico go off the grid, right? What the the hell, right? What does Texas have to do with us? And I think that's when people really woke up to how to the extent to which this privatization of the energy system is, you know, Mexico now imports somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of its gasoline, which has come down over the last few years. Mm-hmm. So the United States could simply turn off the spigots of its refineries and have Mexico prostrate. So how can you how can you operate an independent foreign policy or an independent policy of any kind? when you're dependent on another country, especially an empire like the United States, for your energy and for your food. Mm -hmm. It would be one thing if Mexico didn't have natural resources. There are some countries that don't and have to import. But Mexico does. And this has been a deliberate attempt to sabotage Mexico's um, own energy production. Um, A fifth of Mexico's natural gas is simply burned off. It's simply burned off at the source while they've negotiated these very juicy contracts to import natural gas. There was one ridiculous contract back in the, in the 2000s where Felipe Calderon made a deal with Spain, which has no natural gas, to import natural gas from Peru to Mexico instead of using Mexico's own gas. So it became a big scam. So what this new law says very succinctly is that uh, in our grid, in the national grid, public sources of energy have to be used first and then private sources. So you have to use the public sources first. So, for example, Mexico has a lot of hydroelectric power in the East Coast and the South. Those hydroelectric uh, dams were sitting idle or largely idle. And so a few years ago in in Tabasco, there was a huge problem with uh, flooding uh, in large part because the dams were just sitting there idle. They weren't being... So... And they're refurbishing the dams now. So the law is very says clearly we have to use public sources of energy first. Um, and, you know, Iberdrola reps all these Spanish companies and American, you know, interests um, went crazy about it and used the argument of environmentalism, right? Now, uh, environmentalism is supremely important, and AMLO's environmental record can be criticized, but it was a very duplicitous argument. Because what they're trying to do is protect their own private interest and their own access to subsidies and their own privileged access to Mexico's grid, wherein they would get uh, the first crack at the grid, they'd get subsidies, and then they, you know, a lot of these times would be able to sell energy off to cherry pick who they'd sell the energy to. So they could sell off to corporations and such. So it wasn't like this energy is going to uh, small communities where it should be going. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's the law. AMLO first tried to pass it by executive order. It was bounced back by the courts. They passed the law. And, you know, uh, within 24 hours, uh, foreign uh, multinationals uh, got an injunction in the court. This is part of an ongoing lawfare strategy against a lot of things AMLO's trying mm-hmm. to do. He, you know, a labeling law for processed foods, um, the airport project uh, that you mentioned, a lot of important important things, are being gummed up in the courts constantly through a lawfare process, uh, through this Council of Strategic Litigation, which is run by Claudio X. Gonzalez, who is the head opponent of AMLO in these in these elections. Um, 
conveniently is financed by the United States through USAID, you know, who's, who's effectively paying his salary. You should be able to play all these games. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's really incredible to see like the development of, of lawfare as a, as a tactic just across, you know, the, the hemisphere. Um, and also these kind of pseudo, you know, environmental arguments. I, I agree. Like, you know, there are like legitimate concerns that, and, and questions you could make. Mm-hmm you know, about how environmentalist, you know, almost presidency has been. But it's like the same thing with Evil Morales, that people yeah. are saying, like, Evil Morales isn't green enough, so so we support the coup, right? It's like, you know, it's, 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 it's trotted out at the most absurd times to serve the worst abusers of, of the environment. Um, and so so not only, though, is, is the lawfare being targeted against AMLO's policies, they were trying to use it against uh, Morena, right, coming into these elections on June 6th, correct? Well, the problem with um, with what's going on in that is, you know, I think it's important to point out um, that, you know, knock on wood, I don't want to mm-hmm. jinx it, but is looking pretty good for the elections on Sunday. Um, and if you've been reading the English language press over the last three years, you'd have to wonder why, you know, because according to the Anglophone press, AMLO has done nothing right, right? He's an autocrat who's bringing Mexico back to the 70s, and he's, you know, uh, bringing Mexico to ruin. Uh, and then surprisingly, uh, his coalition is set to win on Sunday, despite a year of a pandemic and all of the pressures he's faced. So I think if you're, you know, uh, an English language reader, you'd be forgiven for asking, what are they not telling me? Or just fall back on the argument that, oh, he's a populist and he tricks people, right? Uh, he tricks the voting forum as populists do. That's been the, the, the shallow nature of the coverage. So um, the National Electoral Institute, Mexico has a National Electoral Institute which oversees and administers elections. It's not like the states of the U.S. Um, on paper, that's a good thing. In practice, however, it's run by holdovers from previous conservative administrations mm-hmm. and doing everything they possibly could to try to... Um, Tip the scales against Morena and the elections. Now, Morena has some, had some questionable candidates that they've nominated, and that's, that's something to, to be discussed, right? But uh, all of a sudden, the INE arguing that they didn't file expense reports for primary campaigns or a technicality of that part, um, eliminated 49 Morena candidacies right at the beginning of their campaign. They just said, right, you're out, including two candidates for governor. I mean, they just wiped out candidacies. Um, so that, that's a, you know, so Marina had to go back and, you know, find new candidates right as the campaign season was beginning. Whereas, you know, conservative candidates up and down the country are, you know, attempting to buy elections through these um, debit cards. You know, electoral buying has, has become a thing. Mm-hmm. And by these debit cards, which they hand out to voters and say, if you win, you'll get money on this card, right? Which is clearly illegal, but, you know, the the, the is see no evil, hear no evil uh, when it's convenient uh, for them. And then they've also tried to um, fiddle with the proportional representation mechanism, which is a little bit arcane, but basically mm-hmm. um, Mexico has um, 300 seats are going to be elected by single member districts and 200 more seats are allotted through proportional representation. Basically, a last-minute switcheroo to try to make sure that Moreno would have fewer seats and uh, try to prevent them from getting uh, a majority. So it's gotten to the point where the head of the National Electoral Institute, Lorenzo Cordova, has said, "Oh, we can we can cancel the elections. Basically, um, we can cancel elections because 
you know, the president and his press conferences has gotten involved in the campaign and other things. So we have the right to cancel elections where we want, which is worrying. Uh, it, it's worrying when you have the head of the National Electoral Institute talking about um, canceling elections, uh, maybe not the whole election, but certain strategic elections, taking them to the electoral tribunal. So Sunday is just the beginning. And so as you write, it's a kind of lawfare uh, in the electoral sphere. And and this is a a pretty large election too, right? I mean, obviously there's like the you know the congressional ones, but if if I understand correctly, um, it's it's seats all across uh, you know local governments um, as as well too, right? So like them throwing the wrench in in Morena's ability to you know select candidates um, really is a huge issue when you're having to find people to to right. fill in all of these different seats. Yeah, these are going to be the largest one-day elections um, in the history of Mexico. So it's um, 15 uh, governorships. Uh, Morena is looking to win uh, more than half of them, as things as things look now. Um, the entire lower house of Congress, 500 seats. Uh, Morena is poised to win a majority. And if they have a really good day, and again, I don't want to jinx anything. I've got these political superstitions. Uh, <laughs> They, their coalition is even inching close to winning a two-thirds majority with which they could pass constitutional reforms on their own without having to negotiate with um, other other parties um, if they have a good day. So they're they're in that they're in that range. Uh, plus several thousand other you know state legislatures uh, where I am in, in Oaxaca, the state legislature is up. Uh, a lot of mayorships. They've um, condensed elections all into one day, which used to be spread out, which is a good idea actually. Um, so that's what's going to be going on on Sunday. And I'm just, I'm just curious. Is that th- so? This was actually deliberate to sort of have all the elections be at one time, so more people would show up, essentially. Yeah, to make it easier to administer. You yeah. know, they um, they fiddled with the um, the links of certain uh, administrations to kind of synchronize everything, so that they'd have more elections on one day to kind of do it all in one shot. <clears throat> that was the idea. And turn, well, you know, we'll see. You know, turnout in off year elections are, is as in many countries, lower than in presidential elections. But curiously, that actually would tend to help Morena. Uh, usually that helps the right. In this case, that helps Morena as the governing party. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, right-wing parties which have run a terrible uh, campaign, a terrible, terrible, terrible campaign, and that's helped Morena too. Um, the class hatred against uh, Morena and AMLO has really been something to see. Um, you know, you... You put in your graphic for, for our, our talk, why do the rich hate AMLO, right? Um, on paper, really, they have no reason to hate AMLO, actually. Um, you know, Mexico has come out of the, um, the COVID recession. The economy is predicted to grow between 5 and 7% this year, doing very well. The vaccine program is doing very well. Uh, Mexico is ninth in the world in the number of vaccines administered. What I think is good with that is that Mexico didn't wait for Biden and, you know, Europe to donate vaccines or, you know, lift the pharmacy pharmaceutical monopoly on that. They went out and got vaccines from Russia and China. They went out there, mm. you know, moved. Um, so, you know, stock market is up. Um, the billionaires got much richer in Mexico as they got richer in the U.S. during the pandemic. So, you know, on paper, they've got nothing to complain about. But it's an extraordinary class hatred against AMLO. It's just extraordinary. They hate him as a person. Mm-hmm. And that oozes out of everything they say. Um, you know, he comes from Tabasco. He has an accent. Um, 
they don't like how he wears his suits. Um, uh, a, a journalist, uh, Hernan Gomez, went to Polanco, the richest district of Mexico City, the other day and was interviewing people as to Emla. It was really very illuminating. Um, AMLO has no class. He doesn't speak English. Um, you know, that's... Um, he pronounces foreign words poorly. Uh, he doesn't go on foreign junkets and shine at international, um, you know, summits like former presidents do. He doesn't. He practically never travels abroad. His concern is Mexico and Mexican sovereignty. Uh, he doesn't wing around the world on Mexico's version of Air Force One. They're actually selling it off. Uh, so it's a class hatred, and that has penetrated the way they've run a campaign because everything um, their commentators have said has just oozed with this an irrational, visceral, class hatred, which is palpable. And it's made it impossible for them to just um, articulate a clear argument or a clear version of what, you know, a right-wing uh, government would do besides steal, which is what, you know, the previous administrations did. And that's been very much to, to Morena's, uh, Morena's benefit. And um, like just on that that, that question is the um, like the class nature of Morena. I know as a party, it's sort of interesting and, and is and is diverse. But you know, how would you describe the kind of class politics of Morena and Amlo so far? Because um, you know, I mean, there's always like Amlo certainly is doing a lot of things like where he's like de- derail. He's uh, getting rid of like the kind of you know pomp and circumstance of, of the present, right. right. As you were, you're saying, and, and all that stuff is, is, is great. And I can see why it's appealing, but I'm sure there's, there's also a lot that he's doing for working people and, and poor people as well. That's improving their conditions too. That's catching the ear of, of the super wealthy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, the important thing is he set up a series of transfer uh, programs, direct transfer programs for people. And that includes um, stay-in-school scholarships for students of all ages. If you stay in school and you go to public schools, uh, you'll get a, a, st- a scholarship. Um, a pension program, uh, a nationwide pension program, which will now be 65 uh, and over. Mexico never had these things. Hmm. He started a pension program um, when he was mayor of Mexico City. Um, small business aid, aid to farmers, price supports, um, and right, these are the programs that the rich, you know, are looking at and saying, well, they just, they use, he just need to buy support and buy elections, which is always the argument being used whenever um, these programs are instituted. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that when um, COVID hit, the financial press went into a tizzy because AMLO wouldn't go into debt, you know? All of a sudden, it was the Financial Times, which is always tut-tutting and criticizing people, you know, leaders around the world saying, oh, you've got to maintain austerity and don't go into debt. Also, they're saying, Amlo's not going into debt. He should be going into debt. He should be subsidizing companies. What I didn't realize is that these transfer programs were doing a lot of that work. So I know families in Mexico where, you know, the students would be receiving the scholarships, maybe a grandparent would be receiving um, the pension, um, and maybe another member of the family would be receiving um, a small business uh, support, you know, these Tandas, Para el Bienestar, or, or other programs. And that helped a lot of families through um, through the worst of that, of the, of the, of the COVID crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can discuss AMLO's finan- fiscal policy, but, you know, AMLO sees all of this through the, the lens of national sovereignty, Um I think there are some two key events in AMLO's life that we can, you know, there's a lot, but 
The first is when he was a freshman in college, which is a pretty um, important time. I think we can all remember. That was the time that was overthrown uh, in Chile in 1970. Mm. He was a freshman at the UNAM. And that made uh, an incredible impression on his generation. Uh, and the major question is, how does a center-left take power without being overthrown? Because it doesn't take you being a socialist for the United States to overthrow you. Any moderately center-left government is right for a coup in the history of Latin America. Even the most moderate, you know, Goulart in, in Brazil, uh, if you look at Arbenz in, in Guatemala, even just straying from the line a little bit, right? Granduras, um, right? All he wanted to do was add another ballot question, a referendum, a non-binding referendum question for the Constitution. And he was, you know, rushed out of the country in his pajamas, right? In the middle of the night. So... How do, you take, how do you take power and maintain power and, and achieve change? And the other big event was in 1982 was the devaluation. So everything AMLO sees, I think, is through the lens of Mexican national sovereignty, right? And he doesn't want to go into debt precisely because he knows that that then puts the country at the mercy of the IMF and the World Bank, um, which then, you know, give you loans but then require structural reforms. And then, and then they're in there. Then they're in the door and you can't get them out and, you know, it becomes a spiral. So he's been criticized, and I think rightly so, for running a very tight fiscal ship. Mm-hmm. I think that's to be looked at. But it's not because I think he's ideologically a neoliberal. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't want to be in hock to the IMF mm-hmm. and the World Bank. Which is a very legitimate, uh, you know, mm-hmm. position to have. I mean, I know I, I've been having, you know, personally when I talk to people, what's happening in Mexico, especially because in the U.S. there's, you know, such big fights about, you know, deficit and, and deficit deficit mm-hmm. spending as a, necessarily a progressive value. Again, I'm not even defending. I, I would argue that you know, almost you know, fixation on on debt is can be you know, a little bit harmful but i also understand what where, where it originates from um instead of just sort of putting sloppy uh labels on him like people call him a neil but hell you know we also have people who are you know trying to tie him together with trump uh and i, I don't know, do you what, have something that he's a neoliberal <laughs> yeah. and a populist uh, at the same time he's everything. actually on, on this real quick because i'd like to get your your uh reaction to this if you have it matt um, this this economist uh, this oh, came up two days ago and it's great. I'm just going to read yeah. everyone the first paragraph because it's so good. Yes, a very foreboding photograph, a picture of Amlo, which again, this is I mean, this was the same thing they're running in you know 2018 as well. The title is "Voters Should, should Curb Mexico's Power Hungry President." Um, let's get this opening paragraph because it's so good. Um, in a world plagued by authoritarian populists, Mexico's president has somehow escaped the limelight. Liberals furiously condemned the erosion of democratic norms under Hungary's uh, Victor Orban, uh, India's Narendra Modi, um, Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, and barely notice Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador. Oh, this is partly because his lame, sorry, he, he, he lacks some of the vices <laughs> of his populist peers. He does not deride gay people, bash Muslims, or spur supporters to torch the Amazon. To his credit, he speaks out loudly and often for Mexico's have-nots, and he is not personally corrupt. Nonetheless, he is a danger to Mexican democracy. <laughs> right. the, the pure the pure untrammeled Mexican democracy that existed before AMLO, right? Right. Um, before AMLO, uh, the Mexican Congress was literally bribed to pass the structural reforms of the 2010s that opened up 
sector too. You know, maybe the Economist really wasn't that concerned about it at the time. But Mexican Congress was open for sale through these bribes called moches back in the 2010s, right? Um, it's almost impossible to find a member of the PRI in the, in the PAN, an ex-governor of the last 20 years, that isn't in jail on the lam under investigation, right? Mm-hmm. The Economist wasn't particularly concerned about those things either because Mexican democracy was, you know, chef's kiss before AMLO came in and, and endangered it. <clears throat> um, and this whole thing that Mexican, you know, that AMLO is a danger to Mexican democracy is just it's just a repetition of the same thing they've been saying since his first presidential campaign in 2006. They, have, they haven't even come up with anything new. Mm-hmm. In 2006, they ran spots that Mexico was Chavez and was a danger to democracy. That was, that was created by Sola, the, uh, the Spanish advisor to the PAN campaign at the time. This was just a recycled little hit piece. Uh, and I like a little bit farther down the piece when they said, Apple tells people to shut up in cabinet meetings. <laughs> Yeah. Really? <laughs> Does he really? How juvenile! It's is that is that all you've got? It's I mean it's incredible. You have that, and then yeah. you know there's all this work. People getting worked up about his yeah. his press conferences, right? Right. Um, you know, and it's like, is this a really? T- I mean, it, it's amazing to see that compared to uh, you know what was happening <laughs> in the U.S. with Trump at the same time when he came right. to the White House press corps. I'm um, then freaking about. Oh, Almo was speaking to the press and you know just giving these like seminars and stuff. It's like, well, doesn't this sound nice? <laughs> heaven forbid, heaven forbid, a president you know is um, is accountable. To the press. <laughs> I don't understand. We don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want that. Um, <laughs> what they hate about Mexico, what, what they hate about AMLO's press conferences, which are called mañaneras, is that they're devastatingly effective. Mm-hmm. They're very effective. Um, AMLO goes in front of the press every morning at seven o'clock in the morning and takes questions for two hours. Anything people want to ask, you know, I'll, I'll get online. You know, I, I don't have AMLO's, uh, you know, early rising um, skills to that extent. You know, I'll get online 8, 8.30, sometimes 9. And I'm like, oh, the press conference is still going, you know. And then, <laughs> but what the, the, the Mañanera has been away, and I think this is a very important point that I think we've lost in the United States a lot, <clears throat> is the way to keep the base engaged when it's not election time. Mm-hmm. Here we get all engaged during the primaries and we, well, in the U.S., uh, we get all engaged, you know, for a few months trying to get, you know, somebody like Bernie elected in the primaries or, you know, whatever else. Um, and then there's not a mechanism outside of election time to do that. The Mañanera has been a way for AMLO to speak over the heads of the press, which usually filters and twists, you know, everything, uh, everything he says. And he can speak directly to them. People can go online and watch the Mañanera directly. Um, they can they can see what the mm-hmm. president directly they can see the answers to questions directly right without getting 30 second clips on the news right um and amlo gives these like these master classes in media criticism right so he'll point out a distorted media article he'll you know he'll uh, he'll put the uh, the article up on the screen uh, he'll he'll you know he'll break out the receipts he'll break out old contracts uh he'll you know he'll, he'll give you the backstory and what's really going on um and it's just this master class on um on media criticism and political history in the in the country every morning for a couple hours, right? Um, and this is and the press hates that, and that's why they call him like a Trump mm-hmm. because he doesn't stand there and take press hits lying down. The idea is that the left is supposed to just take you know having a wall of press against them and just take it lying down because if you don't take it lying down, you're authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Watch 
you're an autocrat, right? How dare, how dare you speak back, right? AMLA may have the presidency, but that doesn't mean that 90% of Mexico's press isn't still against him on a daily basis, you know, including the television stations, including the major – including, you know, a lot of people who made a lot of money – called the chayote in Mexican slang, uh, off of previous administrations, which doled out millions and millions of dollars worth of governmental publicity to these, to these media people um, to keep them on side. Mm-hmm. So that's dried up, um, and which is another reason why they hate AMLO all the more, right? That, that nice little game where the elite strata of, of press will become immensely rich off of governmental publicity and governmental largesse, um, that spigot is closed, Right. And they hate that and they hate the Mañaneras to the extent that the National Electoral Institute tried to stop the Mañaneras from being um, uh, transmitted during the uh, campaign season, arguing that it was electoral propaganda. Uh, they lost, but they tried. <laughs> I can't. I can't understand that. Uh, you know, just yeah. a simple question of democracy. <laughs> you could really make that that argument there. Um, did you have something, Matt? Uh uh, yeah, you. I, it just slipped my mind. Uh, as you, let me see. Um, I'm sorry. No, I don't. No, no worries. Um, <laughs> well, I wanted to. You know, oh I, yes, I got it. I found it. Right. So um, uh, we talked about the sort of Trump comparisons, but uh, you mentioned in a talk with Ben Burgess on the Jacobin uh, YouTube <laughs> channel last August that one of the keys to uh, uh, Amos popularity is taking the fight to the right. Is that, is, are those press conferences the main way he's doing that? Or tell us more about that domestically, his, his him taking on the right wing. Yeah. The, the manionera is, is, is a main, is a main tool, right? So every morning it's, it's, it's media criticism and then, you know, he'll break out the receipts and, um, and, and kind of give a lesson, you know, the backstory, a lot of, uh, the corruption over the previous years. So that's right. one thing, right? Um, but I think it's important, you know, to, you know, AMLO is an incredibly polarizing uh, figure to that extent because he, you know, he makes the argument, he makes the argument in very simple terms, right, about um, where the Mexican right, what the Mexican right stands for, right? And, and is very, in very simple terms, makes the argument that neoliberalism, certainly in the Mexican incarnation, but in many incarnations, neoliberalism was corruption. Neoliberalism was the selling off of the Mexican state to a strata of rich people that became incredibly wealthy, distorted the political system even more than it was, uh, and created a kleptocracy that has affected everyone. And he has been very effective at ramming that argument again and again and again and again. And I think that's, that, that, that's an important thing, right? Because I think it's, you know, it's easy to get into power, get into the trappings of power, and lose any kind of communication with your lose any kind of communication with your base, right? And then play, you know, play defensive, and then oh, we can't criticize the media too much. What else? I doesn't care. <clears throat> He's also out there a lot. He's also, you know, when the pandemia permits, you know. The guy works a seven-day week, so he's in Mexico City four or five days. Then on weekends, he's out, um, out in the countryside. You know, he's out supervising projects. He's out, you know, all over the country, um, eating at small town eateries. You know, um, next to the road. So he takes these videos and he's like, "I'm in the taqueria of Doña Rosinda, and she makes these great tacos." And it could seem like in in, in other in another politician's hands, like a gimmick. Right. He's mm-hmm. the, the baño del pueblo. Right. 
But with Amlo, it works in the sense of he's got a common touch, which you can't make up. You know, mm-hmm. he can go. This is a guy who was in, you know, like we talk about Bob Dylan's never ending tour. He was in the never ending campaign from 2006 through to 2018. He was constantly going to the 2,500 municipalities in the country, going and going again and going again. And Mexico, that's no small things. A lot of these municipalities are, you know, up dirt roads and uh, eight hours away from a paved road and whatever else. Um, One can make the argument that he's kind of continuing with the traditional Mexican presidentialism of concentrating, you know, everything on him. Right. And it's true that, you know, uh, Morena as a party is very much in his shadow and Morena is going to have to evolve into a much more democratic organization than it is mm-hmm. once he leaves office in a few years. And that's going to be uh, Morena's big challenge. Right. Because, um, you know, Morena on one hand receives public financing, which is great that Mexico has a public financing system. But the problem with that, too, is that it can create a system where, <clears throat> you know, party members are just looking for the public financing. Mm-hmm of creating and articulating a popular movement, which Morena has not done particularly well mm-hmm. as of yet. I mean, it's got a motivated base of, of, of very dedicated people, but it's still very much in the old structure of, um, you know, winning elections, you know. And so sometimes they've made um, some very questionable choices of candidates in order to win elections in the short term rather than building you know, a base of new young candidates over the long term. Right. Yeah. And I would just say to the, you know, the listeners, just like, yeah, all these things are, you know, we're engaging in, in, in criticism and like left-wing politics, especially is like the party question is, is crucial, right? It's, yes. it's like, you can't just go for like winning elections is great, but you know, to not only you have to win elections, but to build the, the coalitions and the movements that can enact these right. policies, you have to deal with the party question. So, you know, you know, that's on one hand, we're one of the big reasons we're talking a lot about Amlo tonight is, especially in the U.S. context, it's insane the way that he gets smeared. Oh, right? yeah. It would be much better if we were able to spend more of our time thinking and having conversations about how can we improve party structures and things like that. Uh, but we have to spend a lot of time pushing back against a lot of nonsense narratives like the, the attacks against Amlo. Um, well, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, and I find myself, I think one of the not the only one, but I mean, a few English language journalists writing about AMLO, spending more time defending AMLO against absurd attacks. And I think we'd all like to be doing what you said, David, which is to be articulating a reasoned critique of where the movement is doing well. Mm-hmm. I think we've named uh, quite a few of those, the, um, the transfer programs, um, marijuana legalization, um, you know, a, a series of um, important infrastructure projects, um, rolling back outsourcing, um, you know, the, um, the Electric Industry Act uh, and others. And then other areas where the movement hasn't mm-hmm. hopefully yet come up to snuff. And that means reining in uh, the mining industry here, you know, dominated by Canadian and American mining interests that have devastated uh, the environment and have killed activists and, uh, are, you know, are taking more minerals out of Mexico than during the time of the conquest. I mean, it's, it's a neo-conquest wow. that continues to this day you know, much, on a much larger scale. Uh, the, a banking system, a very predatory oligarchic banking system of six major banks um, that, you know, I wrote an article about that, that, um, you know, prey on poor people, just like in the States, minimum balance requirements and fees here, fees there, fees this, right? 
um, and making, you know, making more money in Mexico than they make in their home countries. Uh, so the mining industry, the banking sector, creating a long-term climate change um, uh, plan, um, you know, a way of relating with indigenous communities that's not just based on mega projects, you know, mm-hmm. when, where development slips over into developmentism, right? Um, a, a way of addressing the plague of, of, of feminicides and, and violence against women, right? There's a lot more to do, right? I think we'd all be liking to make a, a reasoned critique of what's what's gone, right? Um, right? Well, I think I find myself, uh, you know, defending against the economists, which you know they don't even they don't even try to make a reasoned critique. It's like uh, just, and then I don't know if you noticed, but the economists would then they publish two anti-OMLO articles, and then they were doing it in their Twitter over and over, over and over and over again, as if it were like paid publicity. You know, it's, it's it's that, and also just with the Economist, and we could just have a whole show on the problems with yeah. the publication. Um, but the way you know to link Onlo to these to Bolsonaro, um, to Orban, and to Modi is despicable in the first place. But also, I remember when Modi first came to power. And the glowing coverage in the Economist, oh, yes. Modi is going to revolutionize India, is bringing them into the future, and now we're using him, you know, as you know, as as a villain, uh, which you know is Bolsonaro uh, which, too. Yeah, Bolsonaro yeah. too is another great example. I mean, it's amazing, um, just uh, the, the way that they use these figures and how oftentimes they are just flat out wrong when they're making their initial analysis. <laughs> Yeah, the economist said Bolsonaro is a dangerous figure, but with some good ideas. Right? <laughs> that, that was that was the economist great talk. And it's funny that um, the social media in Mexico have been pulling out all these old articles from the Economist when the Economist supported um, the assassination of Madero in the Mexican Revolution. They support uh, the dictator Huerta back a hundred years ago. You know, um, mm-hmm. putting their thumb against. Uh, you know, democratic interest in the revolution. Uh, this is the economists' old game. You know, there's there's not a coup in Latin America that the economist doesn't uh, doesn't support. Mm-hmm. And it's funny how they do it too. Um, if you notice in the, econ- in the article from the Economist, what it says is, Amlo grew up in the '70s in Tabasco and is used to the largesse of you know of an oil producing area. How demeaning is that? How demeaning is that to say, to, to, I can psychoanalyze you from London. And I know who you are because you grew up in Tabasco and there was a lot of oil and there was a lot of state largesse. And of course, you're not capable of thinking for yourself, AMLO. So it must be a product of your childhood. Um, David Agadir in The Guardian did a similar thing. He did a you know, whole thing on um, the energy thing. And he did this, it said almost the exact same thing. Right? Mm-hmm. AMLO's outlook on energy is because he grew up in Tabasco in the 70s. It's like, wow, really, Dr. Freud? <laughs> That's amazing. Would you do the same thing to Angela Merkel's outlook on the Greek debt crisis is because she grew up in East Germany. <laughs> Can you imagine them trying to pull something like that with Macron? No, I mean, with, honestly, it's like Wikipedia mining, right? right? It's like, you know, it's like last minute, I got to do my paper. Yeah. Let me find like a narrative, right? Okay. <clears throat> like, where's she born? Boom. <laughs> I got the story together. <clears throat> It's extraordinary, right? It's extraordinary. And the idea, too, of this idea of this false messiah, this is an idea that uh, goes back to 2006 with Enrique Krause, who was the kind of the house historian of conservative governments Mm -hmm. uh, in Mexico, who who hates AMLO with another visceral elite passion, right? And called AMLO uh, the tropical messiah. 
And so the, the implication is that the Mexican public is too stupid to think for itself and so can only vote for a messiah, a messiah, a Christ figure, because they're absolutely too stupid to have any kind of, you know, it's not rational to look at decades of corruption and kleptocracy and vote for another alternative. Actually, that strikes me as very logical, a very rational decision, right, to vote for somebody else who doesn't represent the country, the parties that ran you into the ground. Mm-hmm. But no. People are, are, are stupid, so they can only vote for messiahs. And not only a messiah, a tropical messiah, a backward tropical messiah who tricks people through populist rhetoric, right? That, that's, that's, that's the demeaning idea here. And what the economist just did was recycle Krauss's um, argument from, from 2006, right? Mm-hmm. And then they wonder why they lose. <laughs> and then they wonder why they're losing, it's extraordinary that in these elections on Sunday, the PRI and the PAN and the PRD, three parties have gained up against Morena. The PAN, the, the Conservative Party, the PRI, the former Hygienic Party, and what's left of the PRD, which was Amo's former party. Three parties together, and even then they can't win. <laughs> and they wonder why they can't win when they're constantly insulting the public mm-hmm. with stuff like that over and over again. And that's all they've got. Well, I mean, hopefully for for the future of uh, you know of Mexico and the world that they rely on that strategy going forward. Yeah, Kurt, hopefully they don't learn. <laughs> exactly. No, hopefully they could keep they could keep it up. Kurt, I really appreciated this. I'd love to do it again Thanks, sometimes. Guys. And uh, we're looking forward to hopefully good results on Sunday. And thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your reporting. Thanks for your space. Appreciate it. And Thanks, Kurt. What are you doing here too? Bye bye. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was fun. That was great. Um, I'm going to going to take a little break here and then we'll be back uh, to uh, dunk on Crowder. Uh, right. So be right back, folks.
All right, folks. Welcome back. I probably should have faded that a little bit better, but uh, <laughs> hard cut. We're moving fast, y'all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm all I'm all fired up. We got base Kurt over here. <laughs> yeah, that was excellent. That was, um, that was a lot of fun. Is there uh, sort of on the heels of that? Is there anything more you want to get uh, off your chest about uh, Peru? Or are we, uh... Do you want to do that first? Yeah, sure. let's go Peru. Um, yeah, let me let me pull my stuff. <sighs> Damn, did I get to – I should have sent it to you earlier. Uh, but there's more uh, a good uh, dancing Pedro Castillo to get to. But hopefully <laughs> – we'll, we'll save it for next week, hopefully, to celebrate a little bit. Um, look, we've talked about Peru a decent amount on this show. Um, the elections are coming up. And for people who aren't familiar, Pedro Castillo, a teacher and a farmer, representing an indigenous and working-class movement – is going up against the daughter of a dictator, uh, Kiko Fujimori, who wants to open the country up for business and also pardon her father for his crimes. Let's remember like mass genocide are right. These are you know these crimes include forced sterilization of over two hundred and fifty thousand indigenous people to quote prevent a drain on resources. And that would be monstrous enough, but his reign also includes death squad killings, murder, kidnapping, disappearances, you know, and, and Alberto Fujimori is in prison for these crimes against humanity. His daughter, again, who's running, says that she would very seriously consider pardoning, uh, pardoning him. Yeah, so I, I just yeah. want to jump in there because I, I, I don't know if we're going to go to the Miami Herald piece first, but... When they say uh, Fujimori is touting law and order, it's in the context of also defending uh, her father's legacy. Yeah, it's it's a joke. I mean, yeah, we'll get to this Herald piece, which is uh, going to close us up as our final ringing endorsement of, of Castillo. Um, but look, uh, international capital has very clearly put their thumb on the scale. Major corporations have been out campaigning. Um, you know, clandestinely and and overtly uh, for you know Fujimori to to win, right? Um, because they're very comfortable with authoritarian governments as long as they are neoliberal and pro-capitalist, uh, which her government and, and that tradition very much uh, stands on that side. But people need to understand that this fight is not just you know a fight between you know a, a kind of a, a, a left movement versus just a you know far right movement. Like there is something that's very positive that's developing here. It's a real fight um, for working class people, um, and it is exposing the extreme gap in the country between the rural and the and the rural part of the country and the urban part of the country. Right? It is bringing a lot of people into politics who have been forgotten, um, have been ignored, and have suffered immensely, uh, not just through years and years and years of mismanagement from government and the ravaging of extractive industries and of capitalism, uh, but from this COVID pandemic, which has very much um, you know, hit the rural communities in Peru hard. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Pedro Castillo has made the class dynamics uh, very clear about this campaign. You know, he's quoted as saying, this is a battle between the rich and the poor, the struggle between the master and the slave, right? These aren't just campaign embellishments. This is showing up in the people who are supporting him. Um, we open up the show, you know, 
uh, with you know with that with that fun celebration of Castillo dancing to music that is ridiculed in, in more urban areas and the more cosmopolitan parts of society. Um, this is people being recognized and seen. Um, and it also needs to be mentioned time and time again that Castillo is not just running on rhetoric alone. He's very specific about targeting ex- extractive industries and the power of capital, rewriting the Constitution. We talk about why the pencil um, has been such a big part of the campaign. Um, and look, we all know what happens when you get into power. There's no guarantee that Castillo will have the institutional support and the political support needed um, you know, to implement all of the more radical and beneficial policies that he's running on. Um, but you can't forget what the important dynamic that we're seeing here, which is working class people and indigenous people very much um, being brought in, like, not that they weren't political before, but having a vehicle for power. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pedro Castillo comes from the region in Peru where the last Incan emperor, emperor was slaughtered by the Spanish. Echoing Evo Morales, Evo Morales's you know powerful statement that 500 years in resistance, 500 years in power. Um, uh, Castillo has described the period of, of time in, in, in Peru uh, predating this as 500 years of pillage, exploitation, and neglect. Right? These things aren't accidental. Right? And in fact, Evo Morales says uh, when Pedro Castillo won that first uh, round election um, that he won on the you know on the policies of moss right not taking credit for it but saying like he's running on our program he's with us we are on the same side and look a lot of people make a big deal about the fact that castillo has some socially conservative views from my understanding most of those views while they should be challenged and taken seriously um are not things that are uh, active in the sense that like he wants to roll back social protections for people. He said on most of these hot button issues that he thinks the people should de- decide. Right. Um, and, and people make the distinction between Castillo and Mendoza uh, on, you know, on Castillo's positions on, uh, you know, on gay marriage and on abortion um, and, you know, saying that oh, Castillo's not pro for those things. And, uh, and Mendoza was right. Mendoza represented the more institutional left, the, the, the left that, um, had stronger roots in you know urban communities versus these more rural um, communities that uh, Castillo uh, represents and is a part of. Um, they always make this distinction between these questions on social issues, and they ignore very key planks and differences between Mendoza and Castillo, um, including the fact that Mendoza was running her campaign, calling Maduro a dictator, supporting attacks on Venezuelan democracy, distancing herself from the left movements across South America, right? I'm sorry, you can see very clearly the dynamics that are at play here. This is like Elizabeth Warren's stuff versus a new kind of political dynamic. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have its own contradictions and problems that we should take seriously, but I'm sorry with this. Uh, with this with this game now, especially with with this, the way that the stakes are, I'm very happy that the DSA um, is is in Peru right now, observing the elections at the request of members of Peru Libre. That is an incredible moment of actually building the international solidarity that we always say we need. Um, and I'm I'm very excited and I'm hopeful for a positive result on on Sunday. Um, and I think that people should recognize the kind of political um, rupture that we're seeing right now, taking very seriously the contradictions and the questions and the problems that come with it, but not just being so blase about it, that they're not seeing what's happening when rural and indigenous people and working class people are rising up on a campaign that is explicitly anti-capitalist, explicitly uh, socialist, and explicitly aimed 
at weakening the institutional power of capital in Peru and also breaking the chains of imperialism in that society. Yeah, I mean, and it's uh, against a restoration of uh, a Fujimori <laughs> dynasty. Um, I mean, so, I don't, you, you think, I guess the question is, do you think this stuff is mainly for international consumption or do you think they're like really no, trying to split the left in Peru? I think it's. I think a lot of the concerns uh, arise from a legitimate place. Right, right. You know, across across South America, right now, there are incredible and very important fights um, for for social rights that have long been denied. Right, but the, the the reality is, this is the case across the the continent too. Right, um, and and I think that it comes from a genuine place of people trying to make these criticisms because they want to. We want to be moving forward, and what I'm saying is not to ignore these, but especially people in the West. Yes, um, a, w- a way that a lot of these things get utilized um, is to sort of prepare people um, for what was coming, which was this onslaught of I- international wealthy support from liberal journals. Um, as well as obviously conservative ones for Fujimori, right? Um, there's all this freak out that, you know, Castillo is a representative of anti-democracy, right? That he will end democracy in the country. It's Fujimori. Like- in fact, like he's doing the complete opposite. He's, he's bringing in, you know, the, the people who have been most left out of democracy yeah. in that country. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's like, it's just so funny to make those arguments and you're running against, Fujimori saying my dad wasn't wrong. <laughs> like I, I don't. <laughs> you know, so again, again, I, I never mean to like downplay these things. I'm just trying to get people to think seriously um, about them because it's used in a way that completely overshadows uh, what's actually going on with this campaign, right? Because the reason I get frustrated about it is because I remember when he first won the first round election. It was almost like a script went across like the kind of progressive left on this, yeah. right? Uh, which is like, oh, we don't like the right, but also he has you know bad views on, on these on on abortion and gay marriage, right? Which again should be condemned and taken seriously, but it became such a headline that people weren't talking about the fact that he was targeting extractive industries. They weren't talking about the fact that he was trying to rewrite the constitution. They weren't talking about the fact that there had been an incredible working class rural revolt against. Um, a, a kind of urban um, capitalist elite, right? I mean, this was, these were storylines that were really important and they almost immediately uh, became uh, subsumed in, in this discourse. And that, I think that's why I have, uh, you know, such attention uh, about it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, and I think there's going to be real questions about what happens if Castillo is able to win uh, with the party um, itself, you know, not mm-hmm. being able to control all the, the levers of government that are necessary, um, to implement the changes that are being promised, being campaigned on. Um, but this is a rupture. And if you want things to get better on all of these issues, you should want the political constituency to shift away um, from the money powers and the elite and shift toward the working class and the poor and the indigenous. Because if you want to create the space where we can have um, fight for all of these rights that are important, those are the conditions that are going to be necessary to do it. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And maybe we could do uh, um, one last endorsement uh, from yeah. <laughs> one of our favorite uh, <laughs> public well, Miami, yeah. Miami Herald. Yeah, the, the place I like to go for my coverage of Latin America, um, just at large, just Miami Herald. I, they're definitely going to speak uh, to the people that we want to be speaking to. Um, 
here is this party. <laughs> it really does like, you know, I, I just to be quick, there was a, a article in Jacobin that, you know, said maybe cool it on the Avil comparisons because Avil had a big, long, um, you know, track record. And although like, obviously we're not going to de- denigrate immersion from teacher strikes. Um, yeah. Like a teacher's union. I mean, that's another thing too. Like right. people don't even talk about the fact this is a teacher. Uh <laughs> Right from rural America, I think. Um, but uh, anyway, um, any I saw this and I, I knew that my anyway party of Peru's leading presidential candidate is Marxist and wants to nationalize everything. I <laughs> oh, mean, I mean, I wish as much. Um, you know, in, in, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there's like this funny thing too. Uh, well, I mean, I, I just want to pl- also play the. Um, they, they mentioned like. Um, Lenin and Fidel Castro saying, um, oh yeah, um, uh, yeah, let me read this. Um, a subchapter Lenin and Fidel concludes that Russian revolutionary leader Vladimir uh, Lenin was right in saying that the true freedom of the press in a society will only be possible once it liberates itself from the yoke of capital. Uh, and later quotes a similar statement by the late Cuban dictator uh, Fidel Castro. Now, I know that there might be some press freedom issues uh, in, like, for instance, Cuba, but I will say the perversion of media mm-hmm. that we witness because capitalists own it all is so fucking glaring like from bezos and the washington post like these statements about the press are entirely true like yeah. the press absolutely needs to liberate itself from the yoga capital i mean like any other sort of worthwhile enterprise no, I think that you're 100% right. Actually, I think we should take a second to just look through some of these. First of all, we're bearing the lead here. Uh, this piece is by Andreas Oppenheimer, um, which we always love, uh, you know, people in Miami with uh, with good German names, mm-hmm. um, you know, talking about the scary leftists. I just want to go to this part where he talks about uh, the party document, Matt, these first chapters sort of go through these, because honestly, this for a second, you would, might think that this is an, an actual endorsement uh-huh. um, from the publication. <laughs> um, so they say here, um, the party's documents first chapter about the party's nature says that is a leftist socialist organization, adding that to be a leftist, one has to embrace the Marxist theory and Marxist Leninism. Sounds good. Second chapter towards a new political constitution that says once the party attains power, it will draft the new constitution, a document that will pave the way for a sovereign country that no longer will be subjugated to the government of the United States and international financial institutions. Again, this is great. Yeah, um, good. And it, not only is this good, but I just want to like make a point on this, right? That there's this is the big thing that they're saying when they were they're threatening that oh, this is an anti-democratic uh, movement that they want to rewrite the constitution. They're running on it. They're saying to people, elect <laughs> us and we will rewrite the, con- like, this isn't a sneaky move that's coming like after a couple years in power. Oh, I'm going to, you know, do something. Uh, you know, it's what do those pencils myself. mean? I'm saying vote for me. I'm carrying around a big ass pencil, life size, like a five foot pencil telling me if you <laughs> elect me, we will rewrite the constitution. Um, third chapter. Uh, this is again from this piece. Um, New state economic order says that multinational firms will have to pay 80% of their profits to the Peruvian government. If they refuse, Peru may go forward with their nationalization. Great. Fourth chapter, a new public school system aimed at liberation. The party calls for a new school system that will form citizens who will be autonomous and revolutionary. That sounds mighty fine. 
Um, and then the sixth chapter is what Matt was talking about, um, where they're saying that they want to do something about the high concentration of news media in the hands of a few private companies um, that the, the party document says it must not only be fought against, but prohibited. Again, these are all phenomenal um, things. Uh, and then anyways, later in the piece, uh, you know, this person makes the admission that Fujimori ain't too great. Uh, that she has authoritarian genes and recognizes that she's the daughter of Alberto Fujimori. Um, and, you know, who this is the crime they list here, the right wing president who illegally shut down Congress in 1992. Terrible thing, right? Um, but also, you're completely skipping over the murders and the terrorism against people uh, that, that he implemented as well. It's, it's, it's a real, real joke. Um, and he also notes here, Fujimori promises to respect the rule of law. Um, I mean, uh, mass murder of indigenous uh, populations and leftists is their, what we kind of uh, certain people understand as the rule of law. Um, and I think we'd be naive to act like we have somehow graduated from that world somehow where people don't want that. Well, it's, and it's also, I mean, if you care about the rule of law, this is also somebody who has said that they will very seriously consider um, pardoning their father for his crimes, um, you know, who was sentenced to 25 years in prison. So it doesn't really sound to me like somebody who cares a lot about the rule of law. Regardless, the choice here was made for you if you're any kind of reasonable person a long time ago. Um but I've also just been very frustrated about people not recognizing that beyond this just being an easy choice between just absolute monster and a monster right-wing political movement, that there's a lot of positive uh, that we're seeing here from Pedro Castillo and Peru Libre and a lot of things to celebrate while having serious you know, criticisms of, of, of social views and values that we don't um, agree with, um, but recognizing that the way forward um, is you know critical support of of our friends um, because this is a movement that very much is working to empower people, um, empower working class people, and I don't think that you should you know be so quick uh, to dismiss it and to not recognize the conditions and circumstances that is arising in. Absolutely. Well, should we do the Crowder here? Or should we bump it to uh, post game? I mean, I feel like you got to give the people what they All want. Right. That, that's all I need. All right, guys. So we got this. I'm, I clipped eight minutes of Steven Crowder. This is from uh, April 10th, 2020. Uh, stream titled, The Real COVID Numbers! Exclamation point. And uh, I just want to go through this because I think it sort of, despite all of his claims and just a hilarious amount, uh, just aging horribly, horribly, horribly. This really set the table for denialism that people are still running or, or, or it's like the playbook for denialism about how serious what happened mm. is. And so let's just start with this. Um, Steven Crowder. So uh, let me bring wrong. this up. Let's talk about the death rates. Have you guys been following this? I have, yes. Mm-hmm. I very lost much. sleep very much, that guy says, over this, by the way. And I want to know, this is something I'm very curious about to people out there. How many people watching right now, does anyone have coronavirus? Do yeah. Have any of you actually uh, contracted COVID-19? Proof this this sort of line of inquiry. 19, I forget the number sometimes. Like, yeah, are, we, we, on? Yeah. are we on twenty two now? We're was, still on nineteen. Was, yeah. Um, and do you know anyone who's died from coronavirus? I want to know people out there. I, this is anecdotal, but of course we see the data, and sometimes right. you don't you know you don't realize what's going on until you see how it affects 
real folks. Name that movie line, people out there. Um, I assume that's is that a Batman thing, Joker? I don't know. Who knows? But I'm going to say something here. The death stats that you're getting are bullcrap. Now, I want to cute Maddie to search this because this is a story that's going around everywhere in the morning. You guys have heard they're mm-hmm. undoubtedly undercounting deaths. Right. They're saying there are probably more deaths than we know about. Can you bring this up to cute Maddie? Yeah, run the search. Oh boy. So here's where they say there there's this conspiracy about underreporting deaths, and they literally search COVID death underreporting, and they're surprised that they get results. Um, <laughs> I should just say COVID deaths are underreported. We'll get to how we know that um, after. If you run that search, that's in there. COVID, COVID deaths underreported. Yes. Let's just type in that. COVID just, deaths underreported. Just genius methodology so far. All and I ran right. the search this morning. Yep. Okay. There you go. Nothing but articles about how it is underreported, how there are more deaths than we know. Uh, here are a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. Okay? And everyone knows this. Uh, the original projection was 2.5 million. Yeah. Okay? Then Fauci just admitted that the uh, projection of 100 and 240,000 was an overestimate. And now... So this is where it gets interesting. So we see what Crowder has done at this point in April last year is bet that it wasn't going to be 100 to 200, that 100 to 200,000 was an overestimate. And because one thing we haven't been hearing about for like months and months is this is going to be a significant flu. And that is, and Carl's going to get to it here, but there's a reason we don't hear that anymore. It's because we blew way past that. All right. Just to contextualize where our numbers are at. Um, the uh, CDC says we're at almost 600,000. That's just like actually there's, it's on the death certificate. Mm. Um, designations. Of course, that's going to miss a whole bunch. Now, crowd is going to have conspiracy theories that all flu deaths are going to be labeled COVID deaths. Um, we'll see why that, that just not, not going to be able to explain um, uh, what he wants it to explain later. But uh, uh, well, let's continue a little bit more here. Oh, it's about 60,000. Now, keep in mind, some people are arguing, well, that's because of the social distancing. No, 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 no. The estimate was 100 to 240,000, yeah. taking into account social distancing, that mm-hmm. that would reduce. Again, we're double that. I just want to be clear that the mm-hmm. low estimate is we are double what Crowder said we wouldn't get to. So again, this is, again, this is where I, why I'm talking about Crowder um, being a, basically a PR, um, uh, a black hat PR person for Fauci, um, because Fauci, Fauci's estimate there and the 2.5 million, like without distancing, that seems totally plausible now, knowing that we have a range of 600,000 to almost a million that if we didn't do any social distancing, we could have easily, easily mm-hmm. got there. Um, uh, okay. Let me, let me just play a little bit more here it to that number and keep in mind that a huge portion of the social distancing wasn't supposed to have an impact yet yeah wasn't supposed to kick in because there were a lot of people who were carriers or who were asymptomatic right so you cannot have it both ways that's important to note right so like having it both ways really crowded is this real life (laughs) it is and you're asian um i just also want to say that i cut out a lot of the stuff i cut out was just horribly offensive jokes uh like just uh I mean, that that's the whole stick. Asian, right? Yeah. They wanted 30,000 ventilators. Remember yeah. this? Okay. So here's another thing, right? So this, this ventilator thing, 
there was it was a novel coronavirus. We did not know how to treat it. They thought maybe ventilators are the solution. It turned out that actually the way they're using ventilators was causing a lot of damage because we just didn't know what the fuck this was doing to people's lungs. Um, and Donald Trump, I don't know what they're doing with the ventilators. We need to look into that. And yeah. everyone said, well, how could dare he say that? Well, uh, they peaked uh, at uh, needing uh, only a fraction of what they thought. Donald oh. Trump said 4,000. Wow. They've never needed uh, 30,000 uh, ventilators. Good. Certainly they haven't reached that peak yet. Yeah, I mean, we should have them ready in case we need them. Something else that is important, okay? I, I, this is how it kind of started. Last night I was looking at going, well, uh, people who have the flu must be compromised. Right. So how many people are dying just from the flu? And I noticed we can have this overlay right here. This is the CDC image um, that flu deaths and pneumonia, they've gone down to effectively zero. Hmm. Oh, that's weird. I, I it's when like... I so this is just entirely bullshit. Probably the CDC hadn't been updating things. In, there were 22,000 uh, flu deaths last year. That is lower than the previous year, which is 31,000. That is lower than a high of uh, five years or so years ago of 61,000. Hmm. What do you think? Go ahead. Yeah. Do you think maybe some of these social distancing uh, mask procedures might have had effect on that? I think maybe. Um, but... All this is all this is completely um, blown the fuck out of the water by the fact that Fauci's one hundred to two hundred and forty thousand uh, death estimate was mm-hmm. insanely low and lower than actual like more responsible models would have predicted because we know now and I want to put up this because excess mortality is the statistic that really explains all this shit so. I'll just read this one way around this dilemma you know because you don't know if some things are being counted more or less is to focus on how many deaths were recorded over and above the number of expected by epidemiologists and statisticians. So this is why things like life insurance work, um, because we know roughly how many deaths are going to happen uh, each year and how many, uh, right? So you look at this. This is the previous uh, flu pandemic, like sort of influenza um, right here in 2018, right? So we expect a certain amount of deaths. And that rises every year around January, December, because that's flu season. So look at, we had an exceptionally bad one in 2018. So you see a little bit more. We see basically three of those last year. Mm -hmm. So in order for it to be the case, and I want to say this clearly for people who don't quite understand this, in order for it to be the case that, um, like we're instead we're basically we're the idea is we're willy nilly anybody dies we're just labeling it a covid death right like oh you you overdosed on opioids uh covid death which by the way just to contextualize all the stuff here about healthy people being basically safe the amount of in certain areas the amount of people that died of covid um that were young and healthy um approach the uh, opioid epidemic for those ages. Not in all, but in certain matters. So you're basically having a light opioid epidemic, but that's just fine. Let's keep mm-hmm. the economy reopened. Uh, we got a lot of this Carter stuff, so I'm just going to keep... Uh, Checked uh, in at the Historically, decades, yeah. no one's getting the flu this year? Right. Wow. None. Huh. Now, Again, hmm. here's the thing. I want- Again, 22,000 people. The final numbers came in, um, and 22,000 people are reported dying. Then that might be revised upwards. I wanted to assume, as usual, that I'm wrong, but Reg, our researcher, is very smart. Okay, so this is also very funny, and I probably didn't need to include this, but he says, I assume I'm wrong, so I, I surround myself with very smart people. And then, like, not two the episodes squad, later. Man. Yeah, 
he tries to he, he just illustrates the type of people and so him. if i say <laughs> and he said yes steven you are wrong when i feel like i've discovered something like i have this i have this phobia and it's because yeah. when i was a kid and i went to summer camp and they had a prize for someone who invents something and uh you just had to like you know make it out of pipe cleaners and what i did was i made i made a dog feeder where the dog pushes a button and the pipe cleaner pushes open a cereal box and it feeds him and That's then pretty good well no they said it wasn't honey i shrunk the kids and i realized oh yeah it is so i didn't find it <laughs> oh. so i always Dang assume it. that i'm wrong That's awesome. If I have the inside lane on something, that's a decent assumption. As we're going to find out. Line, so this man. is so, two, this is literally, I, and I don't know what happened here because he's wearing the exact same thing. This is uh, two episodes later, though, and I just want to explain. Like this is just a, just a good illustration of the type of people he surrounded himself with. Because David and I, as producers, can kind of understand maybe where some of these guys are coming from here. But let me just. Um, <laughs> I don't, has, who who here has been watching the briefings at night? I've watched about half. Okay, yeah, and I, I just clips. saw the video okay, so. later online. Yeah. Okay, the, the video yeah. from the. Have you been watching them at all? Just at Can you imagine just being clips. in the CNN okay. booth? Cut it! Cut That's it! Cut wonderful. It, cut it. This is wonderful. Yeah. Knowing that in case I get something wrong, that one of you can correct me. <laughs> You're using the crip, the clips that I've disseminated. <laughs> they could be incorrect. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was a little bit amusing, given his point. Or <laughs> some form of coronavirus. Not this now. Okay, here we go. And keep in mind, too, also 7 to 15% of all flu deaths every year are some form of coronavirus. Not this novel coronavirus, but some form of coronavirus. That's why your Lysol and your right, mat yeah, cleaner it. Right. says, hey, it kills coronavirus. Um, we've had 17,000 deaths recorded from coronavirus. Okay? So what this is telling us right now. Again, he, he's so dumb that he genuinely thinks that all those are fucking flu deaths at this point. Yeah. Now, is that all of those flu deaths, all of those pneumonia deaths... Right, those are they're all being again. You can co combine flu deaths, uh, uh, pneumonia deaths, suicides, all this stuff, and it won't approach nine hundred thousand plus in excess mortality expected. Counted yeah. as and by the way, I mean suicide deaths, which is the thing people like to bring up all the time. S like early uh, indications show we're down, maybe as much as six percent. So it's not uh, like people are. Which by the way, if people were killing themselves. Um, over this to that degree it'd be like a national emergency obviously but this is people are dying from coronavirus coronavirus so that's right. important to know everything's kind of being everything together. is being counted as coronavirus yeah. even if they have these other conditions and i thought well okay that's not really fair because that's not the standard that we use in measuring deaths for anything else for example right. if someone has the flu and they also are going uh, undergoing uh, chemo treatment right. we right, count yeah. cancer as the leading cause of death so right away that's tipping the numbers a little bit but then it gets worse Here's what I, I went to the CDC website after. I now, here's where you read something that is actually insanely reasonable. And I think he starts to realize that. I saw that chart. Well, the flu death thing is weird. This is how they're counting deaths. A lot of people are saying, well, they're just they're counting deaths. Uh, almost everything they want to be liberal as bricks, not bricks. That's Hans Bricks. Burks just said <laughs> this is from the CDC. Bring this up to cute matter. Your people will think I'm lying in cases where a definite diagnosis of covid-19 cannot be made, but it is suspected or likely uh, compelling within a reasonable degree of certainty. It is acceptable to report covid-19 under death certificate as probable oh or God. presumed in these like what instances. What is the what is wrong with that? <laughs> um, I mean, really, it's that is completely like what you would expect. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't want to interrupt the, the debunk with this, but it's it's just so amazing to me how much of an effort all of these right wing guys have have committed themselves to denying something that's extremely clearly happening. Yeah, and. I, I, I want to say quickly, like, 
I should have said this up front. I am okay with obviously criticizing Fauci, but criticizing what this lockdown and stuff is being used toward, obviously. But I do not think that anybody who from the beginning, which a lot of people that are trafficking in like this sort of uncertainty are saying, we need to reopen stuff and don't worry about deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because like, that, like I, I don't, I haven't reached a full uh, um, conclusion about like things like vaccine passports, but they definitely concern me. But again, like when you have this sort of thing saying like, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's very frustrating to me. Well, of course. I mean, like I'm again, like, from the get-go, like you, me, and Michael all had very serious, uh, you know, questions about the way that we were handling handling the uh, the quarantine and the lockdowns, um, and we're trying to deal with those seriously. And certainly had criticisms of Fauci, um, who I think it's amazing um, one how much uh, like what they did initially. Uh, for example, lying to people about masks, he should have been fired. Absolutely, there's 100%. no, there's, there's no doubt about it. That not only was incorrect, um, but they knew it was incorrect, and they did it because they didn't trust the public with the information. Yes, right. What's created, you know, and you combine that with the fact that the American public, again, rightfully, um, has a lot of, you know reservations about the american healthcare system right um you know that was a that was a devastating call that ended up creating a lot of confusion um and then almost immediately um cast doubt on how effective masks were at preventing the spread of coronavirus right so criticize the shit out of this guy and i think a lot of liberals um who like refuse to do that you know need to be need to be called out um too but to I mean, obviously, we're trying to like understand why like a madman is 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 you know we're trying to under, understand the logic of of a ridiculous person like Crowder. You know, we're not going to get too far, yeah. but I like I don't understand even if like you consider yourself to be conservative or if you thought that like there was an overreaction, right? Um, in in policy, fine. I don't know. I w- I don't know if I would agree with you, but like whatever, we can have that conversation maybe. But to just sit around and act like you're the first person um, to consider that there could be problems with methodology of counting deaths, like you're the first dumbass uh, to think about that, and not that there's an inc- you know a mass a community of people with far more influence um, than you, by the way, who are taking these questions seriously and trying to make sure and that personal have- like professional reputations and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's but, so. But you're right. But I, I want to circle back to the point you made. It's so dangerous. Like Fauci admitted they lied about masks because they were trying to save the stock. Yeah. And it's also like you should bring up Obama uh, and maybe it was no, it's Obama. I'm, I'm pretty sure about the uh, bin Laden um, uh, using a vaccine site to basically uh, verify his DNA. Right. Like, and obviously that that isn't why Republicans here aren't our vaccine skeptics, but just that general like. Why the, how the fuck can you play with public health like that? Like, like that is, that should be absolutely sacrosanct. Um, Like, and you can trust the public. I, I, I was, uh, I saw this thing from North Dakota um, during world war two, and it's telling people to fish uh, for their food instead of eating um, cows because you need to save beef for the war effort. Cause how much, you know, resources Mm -hmm. cows take people can handle this shit, right? Like if you just, level with them and this instead we get this fibbing this masks might not do anything and it was the entirely wrong bet and it was because 
we don't have capacity to you know <laughs> mask up nurses um yeah yeah no and i i mean exactly it's like from that to like right now where you know the other side of it is like now you have liberals who are very suspicious of like you know cdc guidelines about like how safe it is to be outside um you know the whole thing is a disaster and and i'm sorry it, it, when it comes down to it the right is is on this question is by far um in a way like the worst perpetrators of like anti-scientific <laughs> like discourse and dangerous and damaging um it's it it's really way- just it's just, it's just knee-jerk like denialism like they do from global warming i think i think that's definitely true uh, but what i'm trying to push back against too is recognize that that stuff is anti-scientific and then also you know question your own behaviors and assumptions and things like that and ask yourself if these are anti-scientific things too because the most and i've said this ten thousand times but i'm sorry we have this world historic event, this things that literally interrupts every moment of your life, your relationship with your family, your neighbors, every person. And immediately our culture wars is so advanced that we immediately just interpreted this event in the most insane, you know, red, blue way. Yes. This is a way for me to prove my allegiance to one side or the other in a way that um, it's I, maybe I just have a dark sense of humor that I find it to be funny because um, it, it is actually quite, quite tragic yeah, yeah. Um, that that's the case. You know, and uh, yeah, we could, but you know, so it's important to debunk these these assholes as much as possible because you know there are a lot of people who who I think do have like genuine questions, right? Yes, and 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 we should be there to meet them with answers. Um, and sometimes that also means that we need to criticize big liars like Crowder, um, who are purposefully. Uh, you know, hawking misinformation because this is Matt and I were just trying to show like we do have a lot of questions and things that we're trying to engage with too as everybody else's. Um, people like this, fuck them. I mean, this yeah. is nasty stuff to do. I, I got a little bit more, sorry. Instances, certifiers should use their best clinical judgment in determining if a COVID-19 infection was likely. Mm-hmm. Huh. So That's very interesting. Watch this insane interpretation. Not all- By the, the lawyer of the group. No, wait, they wait, wait, oh, man. <laughs> This pause, this guy's face right here, you know he's about to say something very smart. You just know <laughs> that he's pondering the, the truth of this matter. Let's go. Interesting. Can I sum that Well, up? hold on a second. Not, yes. Just guess. What? Yes, just, just guess. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Not only are they lumping in, so all of a sudden, go look at the charts. Flu deaths, boom, nothing. Again, no, that's not what happened. There, there were, if, it, if it were true that there were zero flu deaths recorded in 2020, we might have a conversation to talk about. Or maybe even if there was a very bad flu outbreak, um, and they gave two thirds of the flu deaths to COVID. That would only be forty thousand of the nine hundred, almost a million uh, re- reported. So, <laughs> right. pneumonia deaths, boom, nothing now. All COVID deaths. Not only are they all being registered as COVID nineteen deaths, but doctors can also. There you go. That was a chart from earlier. The flu's uh, dropping down. But they can also make a guess that. Well, we assume that person died from COVID nineteen. Right. Again, excess mortality stats completely solve for all this. This is important for two reasons. Science is flawless. The scientific method is flawless. Human beings applying it are, are not. Do you not think for a second that some leftist activist who also happens to work in a hospital in New York is not going to take every single opportunity possible to try and label this a COVID-19 death if they are not required to act now? Given what we know about Governor Andrew Cuomo's handling of the COVID crisis, 
I just want to, I just want to ask, like, look, let's say like you were shared this video. You're not a viewer of ours. You may be a little bit on the right. Do you think you were given a good analysis of what could have happened in New York? Like Andrew Cuomo got away with murder because uh, people are willing to help come up. And then the like, New York press obviously, uh, you know, exposed him, but like that is not <laughs> the way uh, things played out. And, and and just saying, like, there are scandals about the way that, yeah, as Matt was saying, there are scandals about the way that COVID was counted that people aren't taking seriously enough. It's amazing to me that Cuomo has has been able, like, don't get me wrong, a lot of people put their nose up at him and, you know, he's been tarnished a bit. But there's a lot of people who still refuse to recognize the really despicable evil <laughs> behind his, his purposeful miscounting of deaths of the most, you know, of, of a population, the elderly. And the infirm, um, you know, that you should have a lot of sensitivity to and, and you should want the government to be caring for, right? They were miscounting those deaths, but they, they weren't over. And the problem is not that they were overcounting them, it's that they were undercounting. Them. Exactly. <laughs> uh, genius. I... Actually, show any proof of a positive test. Just think of what the yeah. media does with this. Mm-hmm. Well, we got a little bit more here, folks. Jeez. I. <laughs> I have. I'm just pulling this up. And bring or even even the the Cuomo. I'll, I'll send you a link to it. Maybe the the Cuomo Mountain. But we should do that after the Crowder because it's just so insane. Yeah. Even somebody who's one more thing, that. and then I want to go back. One more thing. This this is what's crazy about it because you go, how can these models be so wrong? Uh, and maybe someone out there can totally correct me on this. Everything I've said here is just taken directly from the CDC website. They don't apply the same standard to infection rates. So they cannot assume that someone has COVID-19 unless they test positive. And we now know, according to the CDC, 20-something percent of people are asymptomatic. 80% of people have very mild symptoms. So we cannot say, oh, that person didn't test. We didn't run a test, but we're pretty sure they have COVID because right now they're running all the flu tests, right? Right. They are actually trying to eliminate possibilities. So they can guesstimate. Like this point is so confused because what what actually happened here is Trump didn't want to test people. Because it would have showed that COVID is way more um, yeah. out there than it really was, and he was basically explicit about this. <laughs> like, like, um, so the idea, like, this confusion again. This is just any kind of uncertainty. You frame it as if it proves your point about basically liberals have corrupted science. I hate that word, but I'm using it because I want to piss people off. <laughs> I get that it's redundant. Estimate is to make a guess. What's guesstimate? To make a shit. We get it. It's the same exact thing. Yeah, exponential double guess. It'd be like, it'd be like yeah, me saying it's redundant. It's recumbent dumbent. What? So funny. You're laying down and being I'm redundant. just saying it's just redundant no, times two. That's what guesstimate is. <laughs> No, I was I was doing it on purpose. I, that was my I, joke. I, I thought impression. only two of us were drinking. So if we are saying COVID nineteen deaths, you can guess, but you cannot guess. You have to have proof of infection rate. Yeah. What do you think that does to the mortality rate, not the overall deaths? Far fewer. They're saying deaths are being underreported. No, 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 no. Infections are being underreported. For all we know, we could have two, three, four, ten times the amount of people right yeah. now. Yeah, it turned out that. Um, we were undercounting both uh, infections and deaths. (laughs) We've had 17,000 deaths reported from COVID-19, right? Uh, A bad flu two years ago was 61,000. So right now, if you total up flu deaths from this year, which dropped down to zero when he had this COVID pandemic, it it didn't. uh, A total of 39,000 if you add up COVID and flu. Bad flu year was 61,000. So if you add up 
all of the flu deaths right now, all of the pneumonia deaths, all of the COVID-19 deaths, it is still not as high as a slightly severe flu season. Now, I'm not saying yeah. it won't get higher than that, but we don't not saying it's comparable to the flu as far as uh, how easy it can be transmitted. But right. we don't shut down the entire economy right. for that number, not even close. And this is right. with the books being cooked. So that is really what infuriates me. What number is it then? Because that, yeah. that's what pisses me off is, okay, what number of uh, uh, 60,000 people dying should we care about? Because at the time this came out, the argument that like I felt more compelled to make was, okay, if it's even like 120,000, like let's still take fucking precautions so those people don't die. Mm-hmm. And we can completely, like we can, they don't need to be working um, we can just take care of them by, you know, checks. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's, it's like the, the counting is, is, is a joke. Right. And I think it's good to point. It's like, he's making two different arguments about which way the numbers are going. And the second thing is, um, I love how they do this with one breath. And then the other, you know, the other thing out of their mouth is that this is actually the, you know, the China virus. Right, and it's like a Chinese bioweapon that's being spread across the United right. States to cause devastation. Right. Well, which one of these is it? Right. Is it this extremely nefarious, dangerous biological weapon that's been unleashed upon the world? Right. That is, you know, that we should, you know, in their, you know, their view, use to draw racist support for a war against China. Um, or is it a, you know. A fantasy, something that's you know no more dangerous than the common cold, and that doesn't apparently seem to be infecting anybody. Right? It's like it's everything at once. That's the perfect. That should give you a clue as to how true (laughs) these people are being, uh, you know, with the facts. Yeah, I mean, that's there's uncertainty here, right? Like the hydroxychloroquine stuff, for instance. There's a plausible. There's a plausible mechanism for that actually having worked, but Mm -hmm. a bunch of studies came out, and it turned out it didn't. Now. Why that specific one? Um, because there were people like Trump. If if Trump would have nailed that, that he'd be a it'd be a massive propaganda coup for them. And it's the same thing with this lab leak hypothesis now, where there's people that are, uh, are trafficking in it that want to fuzz the, what a lab leak from like a virology like you know lab versus a bioweapon, right? Mm-hmm. And the truth about the lab leak theory is there was nothing to fucking talk about until relatively recently. And who knows even if that's something we should talk about, because again, it's intelligence agencies, right? Like maybe, maybe this virology clinic had a leak and somebody got infected working on a virus. That seems absolutely plausible that it was like G trying to like prove how decrepit American like healthcare is with the perfectly in the whole world. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Look at how dumb the West is. I mean, if that was the case, it'd be pretty impressive, but obviously like there's no evidence to that. So like, and they're definitely the daily beast um, uh, like uh, was too, I guess, knee jerk and, you know, condemning Robert Redfield, but Robert Redfield was coming up there without evidence himself. I don't give a fuck that he, like what his title is. You have to provide evidence. Otherwise, why are we talking about uh, a certain thing? Right? Like, and that's the, that's, that's, there is uncertainty among around public issues of public health. And that uncertainty is being weaponized right now. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make, you know, maybe a, a nice bow on this. One thing that's so funny about the right wing and COVID is 
one, yes, we're mentioning like they want to have it every which way, right? But two, it is one of the purest examples of a political movement uh, that just does not recognize the existence of the rest of the world in the sense that there are countries that have been very, very much affected by this, that did all sorts of different things in the United States. There's countries that follow the same model to devastating results. There are countries that had relative successes um, at first and then, uh, you know, outbreaks later, right? There's a whole world out there of uh, alternative governments, cultures, right? I don't know. It's just like, it's funny because they're all like, well, this happened in the United States because cancel culture and like, you know, liberals are too soft and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and then you see like, okay, well, South Korea had a very different experience. Right. Right. Um, or what was the experience in the United Kingdom or, or Russia or in Iran? Right. Um, you know, it's like all of these countries had very, very different experiences. The devastation, unfortunately, has been shared and it is unfortunately reflected a lot about global imperialism and things of, of that nature. But it's just amazing to me that like in their example and the way that they think about it and they talk about it, right? The only thing that they, it's either like what happened here versus like an imaginary scenario, right? When like, if you are to, you know, like there are examples of all of these other countries that you can actually do, oh, comparisons like, oh, what worked? What did it? You know, what happened here? What happened there? But instead it's like this kind of fantasy world where it's like United States is on an island, right? And then there's the other island and that's China. Right, yeah. we came over to ocean, and then that's that's it. Right, the, the lights went dark everywhere else. And the only like um, sort of uh, uh, comparative governance analysis is between states, and only then, like based on like when they institute, states, right, and only then, like when they institute mask mandates. Which again, I'm not going to down. I think masks are important in inside, but that's not the only. The, when that becomes the only like public policy we're talking about, it, it it's. It's yeah, but uh, can you pull up this uh, New York Times piece real quick? Yeah, just because I want people to to remember, uh, you know, how devastating Cuomo was, right? As governor um, of New York, got an incognito window because <laughs> you know, ran out of time. Um, I, I mean, this stuff is is so despicable. Um, I you know, it's been a year now, so it's sort of funny to even think about. Uh, but, you know, Cuomo was – while people were suffering, while they were miscounting deaths in these, uh, you know, elderly folks' homes, um, Cuomo was hard at work, presumably at night, you know, in his pajamas, uh, penning his autobiography about how he defeated uh, how he defeated COVID, um, and, uh, you know, which was a complete joke. This comes out – what is it um, – this is uh, July 14th, 2020. I don't know if that's the exact day when this came up, but this is, you know, generally. Right. Time period. I mean, we're now a year later and we're still in this shit, right? So this was so amazing. But just, I mean, the, the article doesn't matter. I just wanted to point out the, this insane graphic that they put out about how New York State, you know, defeated uh, COVID. Um, and we find out that that was not the case at all. But meanwhile, he's taking this disgusting victory lap um, as, you know, all of this, you know, continued devastation is happening in New York and across the country and across the globe. I bring this up to say, if you are just a disingenuous, like, party hack, you can make these arguments against Cuomo even if, you know, without being that. But if, like, your job is to just, like, get, like, you know, support for the, for the radical right and things like that, you got to slam fucking dunk. 
with what happened in the major states that were run by Democrats. But to do that effectively, right, you have to recognize the reality that COVID was real <laughs> and that it was a threat and that it's a dangerous thing and it's something that should be contained and eradicated, right? And it's just amazing to me that they're so committed to the counter narrative yeah, um, that they can't just say like, well, look, the states that got it worst were run by, you know, Cuomo and, you know, and, and Newsom or whatever, right? I mean, I, I think that's a despicable and, and a very, you know, absurd way to argue. I wouldn't make the argument myself. But I'm just saying, like, if I were on the other team, like, that's the, a great thing to, you know, it's an easy thing to do. But instead, yeah. it's this this insane denialist stuff. That they're lying. They're making it up. Like, that any governor would want a, a pandemic just slaughtering te- – <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of their citizens that makes me look good as a democrat like yeah Yeah, absolutely insane well folks uh we're gonna wrap it up uh, real quick here um patrons uh give us about 15 and we'll be there with a post game 22 but uh, david we do yeah uh thank you so much uh it's great to uh great to talk to kurt tonight and uh yeah folks we will be back uh in a little bit